Welcome to My Friend Has Never Listened to a Podcast. Today we are joined by the amazing Josh Dean from Campside Media who brought us the wicked podcast Chameleon. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Welcome, Josh. And you're dialing in from New York. I am. New York State. I usually live in Brooklyn, but for the pandemic purposes, I'm in the Catskills, which are some mountains about two hours north of the city. Oh, lovely. Views? Do you have, are you able to go out and... Yeah, from my home, yes, but I'm like way out in the woods and we don't have high-speed internet, so I also had to rent an office. So I'm actually talking to you from a room above an antique store uh, in a town nearby. And do you you thrift downstairs to pass the time? (laughs) Not not a lot, no. I'm trying not to thrift too much. I'm getting some some Macklemore vibes from you, thinking that you'd be rocking some fur coats and... Um, well, yeah, can we just say, firstly, a massive congratulations on the podcast. You did such a fantastic job bringing it together. And I suppose for us, uh, we love recommending podcasts to our listeners. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the structure of our show. So Ollie listens to about 70 hours of podcasts a week. Uh, and through that, she gives me one podcast a week to listen to. So I'm like her dunce friend that, uh, you know, gets the, the cream of the crop. Uh, and based on that, our audience get... Uh, these amazing recommendations as well. And we listened to Chameleon last week and we absolutely loved it. I suppose what inspired you to take this story on and how did it all get started? Uh, in a way, it has like a really boring backstory, but I, but like when you, w- there's more to it. So like the actual, like the one line backstory is that I actually got a call from my manager who said, I have, I have a, a podcast that you should make, which is like, <laughs> yeah. oh my God, oh my God. What <laughs> However, it wasn't like your typical, this is a job. What had happened was a different person who worked at my m- management company had been friends with the character you meet in episode one, Eddie. So basically it was like, it's a podcast you should make, but I'm not calling you because it's like a job. It's like a mystery. And this guy that we know got sucked into it. And we think there's a great story here. So Uh you should look into it and maybe it'll turn into a podcast. So it wasn't like someone is offering you a job to make a podcast, but it did come from a call with my manager. And that like, so I went to LA with, with Vanessa, who is my, um, co-pilot on it, uh, also a partner in Campside Media, um, accomplished journalist in her own right. Um, and she and I went to L.A. and met with um, Charles, who was the manager of Struggle Confusion, Andy, a character you meet in the show, who worked at Atlas Entertainment, and then Eddie. And you know, pretty much from that first day, we, we knew this was something we had to do. I was so worried that you were going to just you know, give us that one-liner and say, oh, yeah, my boss told me I had to do it. And I was, I was expecting this in a world where, where podcast content, you know, I was expecting this massive intro because the podcast itself is, is such a roller coaster and it's so dynamic. And uh, <laughs> Did you have any idea when you started that it would become this FBI investigative situation? Well, we knew that the FBI was on the case of the larger con queen pursuit. Um, and we knew that there was a private investigations company working on it. We didn't really know a lot about where that investigation was or whether there would ever be an arrest. And I mean, to be honest, we thought, okay, if the FBI is on the case, then this will be resolved. You know, we're, we're just assuming, you know, this, so, th- so we're talking about 
I think it was October of 2019 when we first went to LA to meet with Andy and Charles and Eddie, and then decided to do the show. We figured, you know, these these tens of pro- kinds of projects usually take nine months or a year. You know, if you're really going to do an investigation and do it well, or a you know serialized narrative show and do it at the level that we want to make shows, so we figured. There's a good chance by the time we finish, probably there will be an arrest and that's the end of our story because, you know, I think podcasts have led us to believe that you can make a, make a show about a cold case and then not reach resolution. But I think audiences, while they are more forgiving than maybe in TV and some other mediums, people are getting frustrated with that where it's like, <laughs> oh, wait, okay, I just spent, I spent 10 hours of my life listening to this. You know, Serial is an amazing show, but arguably... There's no resolution. So so this was an interesting one where we went into it thinking probably the cops will get there before we will, and that'll be our resolution, and that's fine. It'll be a great show. It'll still be like a rollicking roller coaster because it's such a crazy story. And then, of course, the pandemic happened in the middle of it, and we take people through this on the show. And then we realized, like, uh-oh, there may not be a resolution. What is the end of our story going to be? Because we can't take people on this ride and then at the end be like, I hope they find them someday. <laughs> right? Just one of those movies that ends at dot, dot, dot. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Okay, so thanks. that's very clear on the series where that pivot comes because we were just suddenly like, ah, sh- shit. Okay. <laughs> I guess we've got to solve this now because what happens if there's not an arrest? And of course, we could never have imagined it would come together the way it came together. Mm-hmm. And in, in retrospect, it looks like it was amazing how you guys did that. But like we were panicking for a long time. <laughs> I feel like the FBI was coming to you for like what if you found out i feel like you were the fbi <laughs> investigator at some point you're the tip line yeah i think we put some pressure on them more than anything i i think you know the investigator k2 nicole who's a character in the series did amazing work and and deserves a ton of credit for i in fact i think there probably would never have been an fbi investigation if if she hadn't taken up this case and and kind of started to assemble the weight of it because i think mm-hmm. in the abstract any isolated case or several victims. It just, it seemed really weird and small. And I think you can imagine the FBI would be like, oh, like how much money do these people lose? And like, really, were they hurt? (laughs) Like we've got like bad criminals out there that we've got to catch. But I think what Nicole did is she basically showed that this has been going on a really long time and there are a lot of victims and you should probably pay attention. By the way, can I just say how much I wanted Brian's conspiracy theory to be true about K2? (laughs) (laughs) Like there was a huge part of me that was like, please be real. Your listeners won't understand what we're talking about, but after you listen to the show, you will. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, no, they would have listened to it now because we're, we're a week on, so. Oh, right. Okay. All right. Yeah. Then we can, oh, so I can assume people have listened already, Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, please. Yeah, yeah. In most cases. Yeah, so when I talked to him, uh, the chef we call Brian, that was one of the moments when I realized, well, two things. One, he was he's quite well known. So like most of the victims are lower level, below the line, aspiring. And this is one of the brilliant aspects of the scam was that it targets ambition. It, it like mm-hmm. hits people who really want something so badly that they're willing to like overlook red flags and, and take leaps they might not normally make. But this was a guy who was more accomplished, and it just showed me that everybody's susceptible to this ambition, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, you 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 think that you become accomplished and you're, you're suddenly not going to be looking for the next big leap, and that's clearly not true. But also, like, really what I got from him was, I mean, this thing fucks people up. Like, th- that was really, it was like, this guy is so 
off the reservation right now. Like he, he, the only way that he can cope with the harm that it's done to his psyche and his his confidence and his self esteem is to make it into something like a crazy global conspiracy. Because the true answer, the more satisfying answer, like objectively, is like really upsetting. It's just one person out there targeted me, turned me into a puppet, and then just cast me aside. Mm. And I think it really hurt people badly in some cases like people left the industry people like years later we were i mean you heard it on the show with heather heather was Mm -hmm. like years of therapy and Mm. still not totally over i think she is now i think the journey of the show and then ultimately what happened at the end i think heather like a lot of these people are starting to feel good but like um the guy we call kevin the actor he's just coming around now and i think um when you talk about the facts of it, and I've I've had this conversation so many times with people when they're like, okay, so somebody was flown to Indonesia and they lost like a thousand bucks and it's kind of embarrassing, but like really is it that big of a deal? And I when when you talk when you say it that way, it's easy to think it's not. But I, I now as someone who's spoken to dozens or mm. I don't know how many people at this point, like these people were really only in a few cases were people dismissive about it or like more like, ah, uh, oh, that was kind of weird. Like very few people, even years later, have the ability to detach from it to that extent. Yeah. Most people were like, why would somebody do this to yeah. me? I was really hurt by it. Let's go get this fucker. I think people feel really violated when they've been scammed, whether they've lost money or it was nearly lost money. But I was wondering if I could put you on the spot, Josh, what do you think is going to be the final outcome for the con queen in terms of punishment? I think that the U.S. attorney in the Southern District of California is pretty determined to get a fair and just result. A lot of people say to me, oh, he's going to do like a year or two. He'll sign some deal. I don't think the U.S. attorneys are going to go for that. I think that they have talked to enough victims to know the damage has been done. And then also you have the other victims, the sort of women in Hollywood who are impersonated, who are more Mm. angry. Yeah. and, And... Furious that they're like, you know, I busted through the glass ceiling in this like misogynistic male dominated business and became successful. And now my name is being ruined by somebody out there. So I just think the FBI got the message that this is serious. It's not like a fun, it's not a, it is a fun story to talk about, but it wasn't a fun experience for these people. So I think he'll do real jail time. The hard part is going to be extraditing him out of the UK to the US because it would basically be like a human rights violation right now. I think American prisons are rife with COVID. There's some extradition issues between the US and the UK. Um, our former president did not witness a lot of friends abroad. So he will be extradited at some point, but I don't know. It could, I think it could be like a year or what? more. Has Trump become like Voldemort? Has, is he just something that you don't speak of now? Our former president. <laughs> I just feel like I don't hear anyone <laughs> mentioning his name anymore. It's like. It's so liberating. After four years of, of feeling like that's all I talked about in every conversation at all times, that like, I, yeah, I'm just like, I don't want to talk about that for a while. It's like, you yeah. know. So he'll, yeah, I, I'm pretty confident that he's going to be punished in a satisfying way. Now, like some victims, I mean, you've heard like, you know, some of these security guys, ex-military, including that Kiwi we had on the show, who we, who we, uh, I forget what we called. What do we call him? I almost said his real name and I'm not allowed to say that. Tony? Is it, uh, you think you called him Tony, was it? Tony, yes. Yeah. We called him Tony. Mm-hmm. Yes. So Tony, who lives in Europe, but he's a Kiwi, former SAS. I said, I said to Ollie, I was like, that's a Kiwi. I, I could pick one a mile away. But I was like, I, I we should do like a Confessions of a Mercenary podcast because he's yeah. got just crazy <clears throat> stories. But he like, so there's a guy who, like when we talk about the victims, there's a guy who has been in war zones, has professional soldier. He fell for it. And he, mm-hmm. some of his guys who he's 
worked with Velfora, and he said he described it as the worst thing that's ever happened to him. Ooh. And what, as I said to him on the show, is like you were in you were in Fallujah, like you some of the worst fighting in the recent memory. And he said, yeah, but in a war. Like, I know who the bad guy is. They're shooting at me. I'm shooting at th- I don't hate that yeah. guy. I mean, I might want to kill him. But, like, that's just part of the thing that we're do- Here, it's like, wh- who is this person and why did he pick me? Yeah. And yeah. There's no justification for what you've done. And and he, I don't think Tony's going to be satisfied. No, until- neither do I. <laughs> I think if, if you like stories about mercenaries, though, Josh, have you checked out Power Corrupts with Brian Class? No. Oh, I think you'll love it. Is that what it's about? Oh, it's, it's all kinds of different uh topics from dictators to mercenaries to I'll check it out. So do we think that the Con Queen is in my hometown of Manchester? Now is being held in London. Oh, but, okay. Um, originally was living in Manchester at the time of the arrest, was probably initially held in Manchester City Jail, uh, but now has moved to London. I think he's in more of a British state prison and because it's an extradition case at this point. So basically the state of it is there will be no arguments made, I think, about like Guilty or not guilty, it's it's basically like, can we extradite him to the U.S. or not? And what's the process for getting him there? So um, he's got a, I believe, a, def- a publicly appointed attorney. I think as much of a, a, a cathartic experience the podcast was for a lot of your victims that you that you interviewed, I did find it a little frustrating. This is just me personally that it took powerful women in Hollywood putting their hands up and saying that they've been affected too for these little guys to be heard, if that makes sense. James is a former actor, by the way. <laughs> and we, 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 were, we were running the, the question, you know, would, would, would this be something that we would fall for? And literally at dinner tonight, 12 people sitting around the table. And so I just started selling them the story and they're like, oh, I've got to download that one. I've got to go check it out this weekend. It's such an engaging story. So you're immediately brought in. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. What were your thoughts on that? Like, Does it take powerful people to get it noticed? No, I think so. I mean, I think it had not been for the studio executives and producers who at some point got sick of it. Um, we could never confirm exactly which ones hired K2. I suspect Amy Pascal from Sony Pictures was part of it. Um, mm. But I mean, these were like huge you know, women who run studios and have massive production companies. So I do, I do think it's hard for me to imagine like if it had just been, you know, day players and hair makeup artists and security guards and trainers, like how it ever would have reached a point where it gets on the FBI radar. Because, I mean, you heard it from Eddie, you know, he tried to call his local police and they're like, what's the crime? And he's mm-hmm. like, uh... He's like, well, I gave him money. They're like, did he? Did they forcibly take the money from you? And like, no, I gave it to him. And you know, and I think that you can imagine Heather. Same thing. Heather's calling the British consulate, and they're like, uh, okay, like, what, what's the crime? Like, did someone threaten you? And he's like, no, but I thought I was in danger. And they're like, okay, yeah, get on a plane and get out of there. But like, <laughs> we don't really know what, what we can do. The only alternate path, I think, to like a like a resolution or an FBI investigation would have been if somehow they all could have come together. Mm. But but one of the brilliant aspects of the scam is that the shame that people feel when they fall for a con and this is not just this con i think this is any con is that it's you don't want to tell people about it right it's not like these people are coming back and going to a party and being like oh my god you'll never guess what happened to me they were feeling like i'm a loser i'm an asshole i'm never going to make it in this business like this is this is what happens to me i don't get a break i just get fucked with so it i think it perpetrated for so long because People didn't want to talk about it, so there was no sense among victims that there that they were legion, you know. And it really wasn't until Carly 
um, she came back and posted on Instagram and said, I've fallen for this. That was really the moment when the victims started to get a sense that the, because Carly was an influencer. She had so many followers. Mm. And at that point in the scam, a lot of travel photographers had been sucked into it because it would evolve and metastasize from like one, like one particular kind of victim to another. So from like trainers to makeup artists, to security guards to, and then for a while it went to like travel photographers and travel bloggers. Cause it was basically who can I convince to come to Indonesia for a job that doesn't exist? Mm. Like what gig economy workers? And most of them were Hollywood or Hollywood adjacent, but not always. So I think once Carly put this post out, people started to come forward. Um, by that time, K two was already on the case. I don't think like who who among the victims could have even hired K two because that's a private investigation company. Yeah. How about Enrique Iglesias? He wouldn't. I know, right? <laughs> you would think. I take comfort <laughs> in the fact that he also got scammed. I think if you can con him, then I don't feel so bad. Totally, yeah. In that Korean boy band, uh, two AM. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I forget that. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, in what you just the question, James, that you just brought up. Like, I've we say that on the show, and I say this all the time. Like, I could have fallen for this. Like, I have absolutely all the understanding in the world for these people, and I don't think they're deserving of like scorn or ridicule or you know they feel ashamed but they shouldn't because i've been a freelance journalist for a long time i can't remember exactly like 15 years or something like there have been numerous occasions where i've gotten on a plane to go to a foreign country because somebody on a phone or an email offered me a job like often i have a relationship with these people there have been cases where i've never like maybe i know that 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 name works at a magazine but i've never worked with that magazine before and then i get an Mm. assignment it would never occur to me like to say, is that really the person who's offering me the job? Because it's not so unrealistic. You know, even like if you take Heather, for instance, like was was at that time a somewhat established makeup artist. Hadn't like been head of department yet, but was like on the rise to that. So the job wasn't like so crazy. It was like, hey, we want you to be the head of department. I mean, that is a leap that you might make. And I mean, in Heather's case, actually, there was an agent between her mm. and the con artist. So. Mm. And they were just hilarious. Oh, amazing. They also deserve a <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Jane and David. Yeah, David, was his Welsh accent is yeah. priceless. He was just Characters. brilliant. And how convincing was the con queen? As an impersonator, they were second to none. They literally could have impersonated anyone in Hollywood. And anybody who spoke to them on the phone could have been conned, hands down. Even people that knew those people i'm convinced yeah well he he had he was good at voices he had the ability to talk to a person that men and women do a variety of accents australian england english american mostly but also chinese so a variety of accents the nuances with the chinese british like like the i know i was like wow that's just and then the like pretending to be multiple people in one conversation. Yes. So it's sort of like hold for my assistant and that would be a man. And then it'd be like, hold on, I'm transferring you to the lawyer. And I think, you know, Nicole, who was the first person to figure out that it was just one, you know, it was really, you know, Nicole was the one who determined that it was just one person. And, and Wasn't she, it her husband? Well, she said he had a sense it was a man yeah. all along. But I think when she started to tr- like the data trail was leading back to one person anyway. But she said she started to ask the victims like, because they would say it's multiple people. There's a man. There's a woman. There's a there's like a British and the Chinese person. And then she would say, "Well, did you ever talk to these people at the same time?" Mm. And she, well, well, yeah, we were on a call together. Yeah, but did they ever actually talk at the same time? Did you ever hear them like talk over each other? Mm. And then they would be like, "Well, no, no, uh-uh. no, I didn't." Okay. Like, did they ever? Was there like a pause between? Yeah. Well, they would transfer me over to the assistant. Amazing. Like, okay, yeah. he's just 
really accomplished, you know, impersonator. And, and mm. we and now that we know his his story, it goes way back to his childhood. I and mean, he's always been impersonating people. Now you talked before about the shame that con artists can use to keep a con going. And one person that's actually come up quite a bit in the podcast that Ollie and I have listened to in the last year and a half is Maria Kornikova. And you got to interview her. And I'd like to hear more about that experience because I, I just think she's fascinating. And I think, um, you know, her books are amazing. Um, what what was that like? And talk to us about how important it was for you to have her perspective on the podcast. Yeah, I mean, she talked to us about like the tricks that are used in general. I mean, one of the most fascinating things about that interview to me is that the famous Nigerian prince yeah. yes. in the 19th century. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> So crazy. Like, you know, like, it goes back to the days when cons were done by mail. You know? <laughs> like, literally mail. She did know the story of the con queen by this point, but she wasn't. the examples she was giving were not meant to be specific to that case, but they all resonated. Things like there's always a sense of urgency. You know, the, the, the reason, the way that these things work is that like they're disarming in a variety of ways. Usually, like for one thing, the person, in this case he was very good at, would like, seem to know you or would know enough about you to be plausible. Mm. Like, and in his case, it was often like would refer to names in your orbit, like someone that you'd worked with, a mentor, a producer who worked on a project that you were on. So that like very early on, you're basically throwing out information. that's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. We're, we're, you know, this person seems legit. And then yeah, Maria was pointing out that urgency is often a big part of the cons. It's like, mm. In the U.S., we have a real problem with you know the IRS, which is our tax agency, especially older people. There's this scam where like they call you around dinner time, especially mm. you know the elderly, and say like you owe ten thousand dollars to the U.S. government, and if you don't pay it by tomorrow, then we're going to put a lien on your bank account or whatever. So Maria said, you know, cons almost always have this element of urgency. And in the con queen's case, it was just like, hey, this is a great job. It's yours if you want it, but you have to leave tomorrow mm-hmm. or you have to leave in two days. And then if you hesitate at all, if you say, oh, I don't know, I got to talk to my agent or I have this other thing, but I'll try and rearrange it. it immediately goes to like, OK, I guess you're not interested. That's fine. I'll just go mm-hmm. on to someone else. And then you're like, no, 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 no. Wait, hold on. Hold on. I'll. I'll figure it out. I'll make it work. So manipulative. Um, right. And it's like things that we all would be susceptible to. So it's a great opportunity, but it's only, it's fleeting too. Like if you don't take it now, it's going to go away. And then, and then, you know, as in certain cases when Marx would get suspicious or say would go to Jakarta and start to wonder if something was up or be like, where is this producer that I'm supposed to meet and get annoyed, then the the persona would switch very quickly from, kind of nice and encouraging to angry just mm. like wait are you questioning my credibility like well then fine you can go home then you you're, you lose the job and i'll have someone else fly in and take your place so it's very much the like good cop bad cop and in some cases, literally two people he, he would be pretending to be like the producer and then the, the nicer assistant and the assistant yeah. would be like don't worry you know mrs snyder just gets upset sometimes i'll try and make it work Jeez. and then it would be the producer who's like you're so unprofessional. I'll, you will never work in this industry again. I would just love to have some recordings of him having these conversations with someone. If there was like a some sort of a spy cam that had caught him having these multiple dialogues, right. I think oh, it would yeah. be priceless. I, I know. <laughs> well, we know he was listening to the podcast at the end. So I, I, I think probably, you know, clearly a sociopath, a narcissist. Like I would not be surprised if, if there's like you know, home video cams. Yeah. That, well, of course, we'll never get them. No. They're now in the authorities' hands. 
Hopefully not from his uh, conversations where he was heavy breathing mm. and because um, <laughs> oh, yeah. got, it got so weird at points. Yeah, the sex stuff, right? Mm. Like that, because that kind of doesn't even relate to the main scam. I mean, I, and I believe, what I believe is like that the, he didn't start back in 2012 and come up with a master plan and say, this is what I'm going to do to make a million dollars because it's so implausible that this would work <sighs> two times, let alone 200 times or a mm-hmm. thousand times. Like, there's just no way that you would sit down and think like, I could, this is what I will do and I will make a fortune <laughs> and I will elude the authorities. It's on his vision board. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. My theory is that he just, it was like a lark at one point. Ooh. Like he would clearly like to manipulate people, was a con artist already. Just like maybe did it one time and it worked and like it kind of clicked like, oh, I could probably do this again yeah. a few times. And then it just snowballed. And I think as he realized the extent to which he could manipulate people, he was like, oh, maybe there's like a sexual gratification I can get here, too. Because some of these men, he clearly had a thing for like ripped dudes mm. who had been in the military, like yeah. trainers like Eddie, who like post on Instagram with no shirts on. And I think he just started to push it and was like, oh, okay, I can not only get money out of you, I can get you to, like, you know, help me get Slayers, off. So I think yeah. it was almost like a spinoff of the scam yeah. when, he, when he realized the extent to which he could manipulate people. Mm. But then it was almost like he was getting scammed towards the end where the people he was speaking to knew that it was the con queen and they were going along with it. And I loved that when – but he picked up on it so quickly. He knew he did. Well, we and we had there were three different times over the course of a year when I had I was my my biggest dream for the show was that I would catfish him. And I <laughs> what I was trying to do was set it up so that we could swap me in for a, a victim and then I would be able to like follow this game in progress. And before the pandemic, I actually was like, I'll go to Jakarta. Like I want to meet the driver. I want like I want to be yeah. I want to live the scam yeah. from the inside. And three times we got really close, twice with actors and once with a trainer, where I was like in communication with someone who was on the hook at the time. But every time he seemed to pick up on it really quickly. And this is like, I think he was really attuned to like what those people, how they react mm. and what they say. And for some reason he was picking up on like, I don't know, like I can't trust you very much. But that audio in the last episode of him as Doug Lyman, as the director Doug Lyman, completely losing his shit. Like, yeah. mm, that was, I think his, he was sensing that it was all yeah. crashing down, like yeah. The, yeah. that, like everybody was about to come on to him. And then also, I think he probably realized that that actor was, was screwing with him mm. to some degree because, um, that was just unhinged. And I, I'd been listening to that guy on tape for a long time. And that was the first time I'd ever heard him like completely. Yeah. That did not sound like someone who right. was in control of his responses. He lost it. Well, I've got a friend on uh, Facebook who makes it his mission that every time he receives any kind of scam or prank, like, you know, those scam calls, that he will waste their time to the point where he makes them crack. And he he sometimes <laughs> records these and they are so <laughs> So I almost saw that you guys were doing, you know, that in part. Hey, I was going to ask, um, were there any parts of the podcast uh, that didn't make um, the airwaves? Like, are there any parts uh, that, anything that hit the shop floor that you maybe really wanted to be there that that, that isn't or that we didn't get to hear? 
Uh, we had a lot more tape of well, victims, for one thing. I mean, w- mm. many, many more victims than you heard on the show I talked to. Um, and then there was quite, yeah, there were some other, we had more tape of the con artist, but at some point it was just like we didn't, we ran out of space and time. And, you mm-hmm. know, and Vanessa and I had one of our biggest, I don't want to say disagreements, and I think she was right ultimately, was like, you know, I, I was like so emotionally and personally invested in these people's lives and stories. At some point I started to take it really personally which is like, as a journalist, I'm supposed to be objective, but I was like way, acro- way across the line where I was like, not only do I want to stop this person, but I also was like, I felt like I should tell all of these people's stories. And, you know, and Vanessa, and I do think she was right, was just like, people get it. Like, they, they now understand <laughs> what these people have been through. We, we can't tell like eight more victim stories. Everyone because gets an people episode. Just be, yeah. <laughs> yeah pe- people, listeners are going to be like, all right, I get it. I feel bad for these people. But like, <laughs> But let's go somewhere. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, left to my own devices, I probably would have done like, because they were all interesting in their yeah. own way and they were all a little bit different. And, you would have done a Family Guy episode just, where the joke just keeps going and going yeah. and going. Yeah, we got it. We got it. It's going to get just a couple more, just, to, just so you really get it. Well, it, and now we're, we are thinking about doing a couple bonuses because I found out like more about his childhood. There's now stuff about like the whole London food influencer yeah. part is insane. And I, I've talked to a lot of people in London since who like, it's just bananas in its own way. And I thought, you know, I was like, maybe we could do an episode about that. Yeah. I, I'm talking to someone like later today who, who believes he was literally the first person flown over. He's in, um, he's a director who lives in uh, Qatar or no Dubai. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. um, and so they, I have some ideas of things that could become bonuses. So we're, we're considering that. Nice. Awesome. If, if we can if we can sell some ads. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And Josh, can you tell us a little bit about the conception of Campside Media and what we can expect to see from them over the next few years? Sure. Uh yeah, so Campside is the company I started with Vanessa Gregoriatis, uh Matt Share, who's another investigative journalist who made a podcast called Over My Dead Body that was very successful. Um and then we have a fourth partner who comes from sort of film and TV. The idea was to make a company around serialized investigative projects. So shows like my first show was called The Clearing, which was um, I loved that. Successful. I loved it. Oh, thank you. Um, so shows like that, or like Chameleon, or like Matt's show, or My Dead Body. So you know these things are really expensive. They take a long time, and. I think like there is a bit of a perception in the world that audio is easy and that <laughs> podcasts and anybody can be a detective and there's like a lot of shit out there, which, which I think is not helping. Um, we feel like if you're really going to do an investigative podcast, it requires an investigative journalist, someone who actually knows how to do this, handle the material responsibly, like deal with sources and, um, actually pay attention to the facts and make sure you get things right. So Campside is basically to a company optimized to make these kind of shows. So we, not just the three of us hosting shows, although we are all doing that. Um, we're working with like our network of journalists, mostly in the U S but eventually all around the world. Actually we have a project in Brazil and we have a project in Spain. I'm sure we'll work in Australia. And, um, you know, it's like the idea of all of our friends who've been doing these amazing, mostly magazine stories for a long mm-hmm. time. The magazine industry is dying, but the skill set is is the same. Obviously, yeah. we need great audio producers and sound designers and composers to make the stuff sing. But the core skill set to make this kind of show it just requires a journalist with experience and, and storytelling ability. So yeah. Campside is hopefully making lots of shows like 
chameleon. And how good is it that your first show was just so phenomenal? I remember listening to it back in, I think it was November or December, I first messaged you and said, when's your last episode? Like, we need to review this. And like, like James said earlier, I listen to a lot of podcasts and I know a good podcast when I hear one. And within like by the end of the second episode, I was like, yes, this is going to be a wicked podcast. I don't even know what happens at the end. I couldn't believe it was a new podcasting house because you sound so polished, so professional. And the audio design and the music is so beautifully done. I was just so impressed. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, all the credit for that goes to our producer, Mark McAdam, who who's also working on my next show and Vanessa's next show, um, is, uh, is tremendous. He comes from, I mean, he's mostly worked in film, but he's done. He's just like a, you know, longtime Pro Tools wizard and a, a, and a smart writer in his own right. Like, I'm always going to lean into the journalism. Like, when I explain Campsite, I will say, like, that's what we, because we are at heart, we're a journalism company to make, like, big tentpole shows based on reporting. However, like we also want them to sound incredible. And we're trying to work with producers like Mark and others to make sure that the, you know, the, the music and the sound design matches the journalism so that hopefully they feel special. Um, they are hard to make and they're expensive. And um, I'm glad that came across. Yeah, it was, it, yeah, it was actually crime writers on, I think it was Rebecca Lavoie said, when they when they first heard uh, Chameleon, the first thing that came to mind was Radiolab. And then as soon as she said it, I was like, yes, that is exactly what it sounds like. That's how good it is. Well, it makes sense to me that we're, like like I said, the thing that we do is really specialized and in, in translates well to this medium. But also, you know, we, we're looking for the producers who make sound that sounds like like the best. It's just like pairing up two, two skill sets mm. that are complimentary in, in audio. So hopefully every show, I can't say we'll like solve a crime on every show, nor can I guarantee that every show will become a, you know, a charting hit because some things are beyond our control. But mm-hmm. yeah, it, it'd be hard to, to complain about starting the company with a show. You know, it, it, all outcomes so far have been really good. So a lot of pressure on our second show, which is, um, which Matt is, I can't, tell you much about it yet because it hasn't been announced by the partner who we're making it with but our next show um also should be pretty special i think Ooh, how exciting he might solve a crime he's he's okay. he's in the he's in the process <laughs> um, well i suppose our listeners um need to know a bit more about you because you're you're so well accomplished you've you're not only in, in podcasts but you are also a published author and um, i believe you've also been working on some tv shows as well is that correct yeah i'm in the process of i'm supposed to be writing my third book right now but it's not going very well because i've been making <laughs> podcasts for the past year also because the pandemic my my kids are always here they're like i mean they're not here right now but they're they're around way more than they're supposed to be um yeah. So yeah, I, I, my last book was a, was about a really incredible CIA covert operation where the U.S. tried to steal a submarine from the Russians back in nineteen seventy early nineteen seventies. It, it's like another like almost too good to be like truth is stranger than fiction. Mm-hmm. This, you're like this actually happened and it did. Uh, I think it was the largest covert operation. Yeah, it's called the taking of K one two nine. And I have like a fascination with intelligence and I've got some family connections to the CIA and I, I'm, that's like a world I'm really really into. I could imagine doing a show set in that world at some point. Did you listen to Wind of Change? Yeah. Yeah. Loved it. And Patrick, incredible. You know, Patrick is the kind of journalist who we, that's like, we hope that's the level that we'll be operating on. He's like also, I'm not, we're not friends with him, but we're colleagues. And um, he did an amazing job with that show. So yes, uh, I, I wrote a story 
five years ago now about a missing persons case at a hotel in LA, um, a woman named Lisa Lamb, and it was the Cecil Hotel. That's now a Netflix series called The Crime Scene, The Vanishing mm-hmm. Against the Cecil Hotel. It was a very viral case that, like, I'm not sure I've ever written anything that got more just, like, random feedback from people I don't know, like emails and <laughs> Instagram messages and stuff, because the case really resonated with the public or the online public. It was, like, an extremely online story. It was one where, like, your parents would never have heard of it, you know, or my, like, even mm. people, who, but people who are extremely online knew it really well. And um, the director, Joe Berlinger, who's great, just did, uh, he adapted that for Netflix, and it's a four-part docuseries. It's a twisty mystery, too. For our American listeners, that is out at the moment. Is that correct? Yeah, it came out yes, two two days ago. Currently number one show on Netflix. America. Congratulations! Yeah. That's awesome. That's so that's so cool. <laughs> if only that meant that I get like more money. It doesn't mean that. <laughs> uh, maybe the director, the director does. I don't get anything. You guys have told me taught me something. I didn't know that the shows didn't automatically go to Australian Netflix too. So I hope you get it. Mm. Yeah, I, I do too. Otherwise, we're gonna have to legally find a way to to, to view it. I was just gonna say. So basically, you know, to sum up. I have very eclectic interests. I'm just like a uh, a curious person um, and a journalist who, I mean, I've done all kinds of different stories and there's no real common thread behind them. Though I, I'm having fun with these mystery investigations. I don't, it, it sets the bar high. I was almost expecting the show dog, show dog book that you wrote to have some <laughs> sort of mystery element to it as well. <laughs> I, I was like... Here we, is there a theme here? But as you're saying, is it just you're quite eclectic? So what was um what was it that inspired that to be your first? I mean, the movie Best in Show, frankly, that like I I I love Best in Show, and I remember watching it and thinking like I bet the real world behind this is is just as fascinating, and in fact it was. So I spent a year on the professional dog show circuit back in 2000. And that was it's been 10 years now, 2010, um, and it did not disappoint. It bear, it is exactly like the world that Christopher Guest portrayed. And best in show, and I guess the <laughs> one of my other obsessions is is like eccentric people and like oddballs and subcultures, and I think that was what that itch was about. And, and you know, the CIA is kind of like that too. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, a year was a lot of time to spend at dog shows. I don't yeah. need to do that. Were you ever the one out there walking the dog? And um... no, no, I was just like I was <laughs> embedded is... with the teams that were doing that. But, you know, I remember when that came out and people were like, you should do cats next. And I'm like, no, <laughs> definitely not. I'm done with pets. You know, it's like we're we're going to move on to spies or something else. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> it was fun. I mean, I love doing it and I'm, I'm happy to have done it. And I still think like there there would be a fun TV show in that. But, um, yeah, I'm retired from dogs i tend to like retire from you know it was like after the clearing people were like what what's like what's the next murder case you're gonna do i'm like i'm i'm done with murder mm. for a while like i and i think to to bum the room out for a minute i'm very conflicted about podcasts and murder cases i, I think that like it's such a popular genre mm. and that the audience wants these things so badly that they're just being turned out and i think a lot of cases they're not being done very responsibly and often are exploitative and just they don't exist for any reason other than to be entertaining mm. and like mm. You got to remember these are people's family members, and like one thing we did on the clearing, I think pretty well was like show the other side of it. Obviously, April was a victim of her; she didn't kill anyone. It's not her fault that her dad was a terrible human being. And then, like, we spent two entire episodes with families of victims mm-hmm. just to show like what's the other side of this is. But by the time I was done with that, I was like, I, I can't do this. I'm not saying never, but I, I, I don't really need to spend. In that case, it was almost two years, like thinking about tragedy of like 
these are people's family members. And in those cases, often cold, cold cases are a particular kind of terrible because not only did you you lose somebody, but you don't know what happened to that mm-hmm. person. To bring it, to lift it up a little bit again, it's like, do I, I'm not going to do a con artist story next, probably. I tend to like move something else. Yeah. In fact, my next podcast is about a um, heroin addicted bank robber who used to be an engineer. Oh, excellent. Well, we look forward to it. Well, he, he worked at Boeing designing airplanes and then got addicted to opiates mm. the way so many people have and slid into heroin and became a really, really good bank robber. He's now out the other side, but uh, yeah, I've been talking to him for three years now, and that that show hopefully will be out this year again. Like the the partner on that one hasn't announced it yet, so um, well, we'll look forward to listening. You put it really eloquently today when you talked about the ethical side and the the professional responsibility that people have when they're producing this kind of material. And I think, yeah, I hadn't really considered that before, and I think it makes a lot of sense. And yeah, things that have been done, like you're talking about three years you've been talking to this mm. person. I, I suppose that speaks to why probably Chameleon's been done so well because of the you know the time and effort you guys put towards it all. Yeah, we put a year in that. We, I put to the clearing, took two years. I mean, now I'm not working 100% of my time for mm. two years, but mm. because some of these things just, it just takes a long yeah. time, right? Like, you know, it's like Chameleon, we were on it for a year, but there wasn't something to do every day, but you're like, convincing sources to talk to you or waiting for police files or trap waiting to travel or and I yeah I think the like the the market forces to churn out more murder stories are are significant and the audience will consume them in any form but I do think what happens is you get a lot of garbage and there is no way to do this stuff quickly and it's expensive mm-hmm. and um it just yeah it, it just takes a long time and that's not and that's not even that's just the reporting and and investigation part like that then obviously the audio production and sound like that can't be rushed either but in some cases you have to just wait months before you can even start scripting because you don't have the material yet so um you know i think we're more and more good people are coming into the industry there's certainly a lot of great shows um yeah i thought hunting warhead was was a great show mm-hmm. um i just been i've just been listening to i don't know um i'm not a monster i loved it it's on the list for James, yeah. Well, uh, well, one thing we usually try and do is we try and get you to recommend a podcast that you really like uh-huh. um, and see if you can choose one that Ollie hasn't already listened to. <laughs> oh, well, I, I would have said, I, my answer would be I'm not a monster because I just finished it. And, and it's it's a tremendous example of both great investigative journalism and also just good storytelling. I mean, I think that's the other piece of it. Like I, I keep talking about, you know, pretentiously about investigation of journalism and like, you know, how hard reporting is. And it is, but like, you also have to tell the story in a way that people want to consume it. You know, Mm. we could make a really boring version of con queen probably. And people would be like, ah, I've heard enough. You you know, you have to also be able to tell the story in a way that makes people want to come back. And I thought Mm. I'm not a monster does that really well Mm -hmm. too. Um, And I think it's especially interesting considering all the, what's happened with caliphate and that caliphate was, discredited and um so i'm sure the pressure on these guys like they must have felt really really heavy responsibility to get it right and Mm -hmm. and it's a hard one too because like they're grappling with um you know is this was this woman a willing participant or not like each episode changes they're like and then we learned this and now we believe her and then it's like but we discovered this and now we think she's lying and it's like it's it's great yeah uh so i guess i've already i've already failed the test the one that i recommended (laughs) she has if she listens to 70 hours a week i don't think i could win that game i don't think i could come up with something (laughs) honestly it it still baffles me like she 
she works full time. She is writing a book. She listens to seven hours of podcasts a week. I just honestly don't know where she finds the time. But I'm very, I'm very thankful that she <laughs> weeds through a lot of other podcasts and helps me find, you know, the, the gems like Chameleon along the way. So yeah, genuinely, we want to say a massive thank you yeah, thank for you. for your time and for being on the show with us today. Uh, is there anything? that you wanted to share with us before we wrap up? No, I mean, I think we've talked about, yeah, I wish I could say more about the next project. There actually will be a second season of Chameleon that I'm not hosting. Um, it will be an anthology series about Khan. So hopefully, again, that one hasn't, we like, I, we're at a moment when I can't announce a lot of things. I can say that there will be a second season. Um, it, it focuses on the FBI, nice. on an FBI story. Cool, um, exciting. So quite, a, and it's set in Las Vegas. So it's a very cool. different setting. Um should be great. Where will we hear more about Campside? Is it um, do we follow you guys on Instagram or should people kind of keep a lookout? Like, where's the best place to sort of see what you're up to? You follow us on Instagram or Twitter or um, you know me. Me, I'll announce all our shows as they come out. Um, okay, but if people are subscribed to the Chameleon feed, they'll automatically get the next season of Chameleon. And then I think we will definitely be trumpeting like when we can talk about our next shows, including Matt's show. We'll be yeah. I think we'll be making a lot of noise about them because we're pretty excited about his his show which is tentatively called Suspect. It is a murder investigation, but it's a very um, responsibly reported one. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time, Josh. I really appreciate it. And do say hi to Vanessa for us. And sorry she couldn't join us, but it's been awesome to catch up with you. As James and you can tell, we absolutely loved Chameleon and we can't wait to see what else comes out of Campside Media because it was such strong investigative journalism that we just loved it. You had us on the edge of our seats. Well, thank you. I'm flattered. I'm and ha- ha- happy to come back and talk about future campsite shows. Excellent. Awesome. Have a great day. And, and we hope we hope lockdown goes okay for you and that the hills uh, don't have eyes and that they that you stay safe up there. <laughs> and I don't, I don't know, like <laughs> wherever you are, that it's, that it's well. All right, you guys too. A huge thank you to Josh Dean from Campside Media for joining James and I on My Friend Has Never Listened to a Podcast to talk about the fabulous chameleon the Hollywood Kong Queen. If you want to reach out to us, you can do so on our socials. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or if you'd like to, you can write us an email to myfriendhasnever at gmail.com. As always, a huge thank you to our editor, Jeff May. You make us sound amazing. And as always, a massive thank you to MJ from Multidesign for our theme music. All right, James, I'll talk to you on the other side. I'll talk to you on the other side, buddy. <laughs>